Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, my lovelies. Uh, welcome to the KGB Fantastic, Fantastic Fiction Reading Series. Sorry, I haven't talked in front of a public audience in a long time. Um, I don't know if you know why that might be. But um, yeah, thank you guys for coming. Um, the KGB Fantastic Fiction Reading Series happens at the third Wednesday of every month. Um, and before we start, introducing the readers, I want to say that we are able to put this reading series on for free um, because of the KGB bar, and the only thing that we ask of people who come to see the readers is that you buy a drink. And it can be an alcoholic drink, or it can be a non-alcoholic drink. It could be club soda, soda. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but... Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you are here to see the readers and you want to give back to the series, please buy a drink, because that's how we keep this series going. Um, my name is Rajan Khanna, by the way. You, you might be like, who are you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm substituting for Ellen Datlow, who is um, working on trying to reopen Camp Crystal Lake, um, if you know what that is. Um, sorry. Someone every so often takes a stab at that, so... Um, yeah, I do really terrible puns, too, also. Um, yeah, but so I am substituting for Ellen Datlow, um, and uh, we have a great show for you tonight. Um, two readers, but I'm going to introduce the first one, and that is Alex Irvine. Um, Alex Irvine would write nothing but short stories if he thought he could get away with it, but in this fallen world, he has also written novels, comics, games, and various forms of interactive narrative. Recent work includes anthro anthro Anthropocene? Anthropocene Rag. Sorry. Um, I also haven't read in a while. I don't know. Uh, the comic book story of baseball, New York Collapse, and stories in FNSF, which is Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine, Asimov's, and Tor.com, and he lives in Maine, which you shouldn't hold it against him. I, I um, no, I'm just kidding. I love him. Um, also, there might maybe a giveaway later. Is that what? There is I'm a giveaway. There's a giveaway later, so just like hold that in your brain spaces. But please give a very warm welcome to Alex Irvine. All right. Thanks, Raj, and thanks for everybody. Thanks to everybody who, uh, who showed up. I have not done a lot of reading in front of people in recent times either, so we'll see if I remember how to do it. Um, this is a brand new story. I like having a new story to reading. It's, uh, I printed it out last night and um, have been scribbling on it since, and so we'll see how it hangs together. It's called Pledge Day. 
Never be ashamed of who you are or where you came from, Luke's dad said every so often, and he meant it. But what he really meant was never let anyone talk down about the founder. And never hide the fact that they were one of the founder's earliest verified families. Maybe not the richest, but one of the first to make the choice. When the time for Luke's hiatus approached, before his pledge day, he told himself he would do what his friends all did. Go sit in the woods for a week, do some fake-ass charity, pretend it was a sobering and contemplative experience as the founder had dictated it should be, then come back and pledge. Luke didn't even want to go on hiatus. Why not just pledge and get it over with? The hiatus before the pledge was an edict laid down by the founder, and Luke's father hadn't worked his whole life to see his kids scoff at a founder edict or dishonor the institution of the pledge. Go, he said. I don't care where. Be back in a week. Your mother has booked your pledge at the Cape Tower rooftop garden. Luke accepted this because he knew he had to. No matter what happened later, Luke resolved that he would always remember his pledge day with pride. No matter what else, he was going to believe in what he was about to have done. The last night of hiatus, watching the fog spread over the harbor. The top of the Cape Tower looms over bug light across the harbor. Big day tomorrow. He spent the last six nights wandering the flooded parts of Portland trying to do what the founder would have wanted, what his dad would have wanted. Connect with some of the unbanked, understand their lives before he began his. But they ignored or jeered. His father had never tried to understand them, not really, but Luke wanted to. Whew, boy, he was wasted. Look at that fog roll in. He started remembering. He's maybe 10. Looking out the window at a, a cluster of people waiting for work. One of them has a visible ragged X on his upper arm. Whatever you do, don't do that, Luke's dad says. That guy just made sure that nobody will ever hire him to do anything except menial labor or something criminal. Some people don't chip. Maybe they have their reasons. The old man is unusually thoughtful today. But when you just hack the chip out of your arm, you tell the whole world... The whole world that matters, you're saying, you're just saying, fuck you. And Luke, my son, when you say that to the world, the world says, fuck you right back. The founder had always admired the Amish, their simplicity, their calm resolve. So he suggested that before any new verified consumer adult took the final step and rechipped, they be given a period of time among the unbanked, the unchipped, to experience that life in all its immediacy and fear. The hiatus was born, a pause between adolescence and adulthood, a period of contemplation, free of coercion or influence, during which a young person could understand the gravity of choice and the fearsome liberty of being able to choose. Most kids in Portland went backpacking or some shit up into the mountains like it was a vision quest, although that was stretching the founder's vision a bit. But since it was up to Luke and the founder explicitly said that a young person could choose what to do on hiatus with no judgment or pushback from parents or elders, Luke decided to see something he'd never been able to in his life. The half-drowned, unpledged, sordid waterfront underbelly of the city he'd lived in all his life. People get killed down there, his mother said. I get to choose, Luke said. <laughs> It'll be fine, his father said. Everyone knows not to touch a kid on hiatus. The lowlights down there, they did something to Luke that I'll be in manacles working the shrimp farms by morning. His mother looked at Luke's arm, and he knew she was terrorized by the idea that soon his kidship would be gone forever. He also knew that his father couldn't wait. The kidship was a tether for all of them, and Luke's father hated tethers. He had not himself knotted tight. He's maybe 11, fooling around at a construction site with some friends. None of them were supposed to be there. One of them got hit in the head with a piece of broken concrete, chip really triangular, about the size that you might throw like you were skipping a rock and then watching dumb shock as it ricocheted off a pile of rubble and hit Oliver Zinke square in the side of the head. Ollie screamed like he'd been shot, and it wasn't even like there was hardly any blood. 
Only other part of that memory that matters is the dark anger on his father's face when the distress signal from Ollie's ship brought all the other parents running. Luke doesn't want to remember anything after that. When the tide is high, it pushes up over the armored footings of the old pier, swirling a foot deep around the benches in the old park past the ferry terminal. Perched on those benches, visible all at once as the fog swirls away from the spot are several young people, Luke's age, plus or minus a few years. They don't throw rocks or insults. They just watch him. Maybe, Luke thinks, maybe I'm going to see what this town really looks like at least once. We're all in chip here, amigo, one of the bits of human flotsam says. Some of us, since we were like 12, there's a lot of money and people not being able to find kids. Luke looks around at the group. He knows he's pretty sheltered and they're deliberately challenging him. But his dad says, one of his dad's favorite sayings, is that true suffering is always visible on the face. The faces at the edge of the firelight look like they could tell stories that Luke wouldn't want to hear. That's right, rich boy. You're just slumming down here, but for some of us, it's life. He can't tell which one of them spoke. They're moving, and the fog moves with them. I'm not slumming. I'm... He fumbles for the word. I'm just trying to figure it all out. Shit, let me know. The girl who spoke that time gets up and sloshes over to the edge of the pier to piss. You're one of the... Another kid says, but he doesn't have the right words. Luke knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on my hiatus before I pledge. You get a week, right, to figure all the shit out? That's a third kid. No, this one's an adult. Maybe as old as 30? Weather-beaten, a few gray hairs already showing in his beard. He sticks out a hand. I'm Anjo. I don't know what it is about you founder types, but you sure seem to like this park. Oh, this come down here? Oh, yeah, Anjo says. Confused and scared, pretending they're more confused and scared because when you're rich, all your problems are worse than everybody else's, am I right? What's your name? Luke tells him. Nobody else would talk to me. Lukey boy, I am at your service, Anjo says. This is a strange time for you. Probably you're trying to figure out a bunch of shit despite the fact that your upbringing has specifically denied you the tools to assess shit and figure it out. Because the capacity for critical thought makes you unfit for a role as a useful cog in the world-spanning machine that's killing us all. He sits on a bench. Waves laugh just under his dangling feet. So, hit me. What's on your mind? Luke's nine years old. They're driving past a park. They never walk anywhere if they can help it because the wrong people might interact with them. And it's a damn shame, his dad's saying, but people judge you on that stuff, Luke, and we just can't take the chance. A million people are going to starve to death in the next month. A million more will die in heat waves. For Christ's sake, the National Guard shooting people for pirating water in Phoenix. His dad sees Luke watching a group of kids playing soccer in the park. Luke plays soccer, too, in a league on indoor fields under strict supervision by approved coaches who adhere to a specific curriculum of drills and exercises. If his kid chip ever pinged his location from this park, his mother would have a heart attack, and his father would say what well, he always says, how can you waste this chance that we've given you? Look... I could let you play with those kids, his dad said. They're probably nice kids in their way, but there's no forgiveness in this world, Luke, my boy. Those kids have their path, and you have yours. You take a step off it, you could lose everything. Every chance you might have, ruined, gone. Luke doesn't say anything, but he pokes at the little lump in the back of his arm where this kid ship nestles between deltoid and triceps. He wants to play with those kids, but also he wants to be them. He wants to be anything but already decided. Hiatus, Anjo chuckled. Yeah. The program descent makes them all feel like they're giving you a choice. I mean, you really think it makes any fucking difference at all? Which bank brands the little bit of silicon you stick in your arm? You think the universe cares which social harvester you give first crack at your browser history? No, Luke says. I mean, we'll all be dead in a million years. And also, fuck you, man. Sanctimony sucks. Anjo laughs. 
A fog was coming up over the water, creeping into the harbor from the bay, swallowing up the low constellations of lights on the islands. Day seven, huh? Anjo says. Luke nods. So tomorrow you're going to reach it? Should I say pledge? Yeah. And you didn't decide yet what you're going to do? No. Well then, what's it going to be, Lukey boy? A classic? Chase? HSBC? Credit Agricole? ICB China? Or do you go with Amazon or Apple? Going to peg the fiat? Or crypto? Stay clear of people who don't want you to pledge. They will attempt to beguile you with pernicious ideas such as independence and uniqueness, individuality, so they characterize themselves. But when you peel away the sweetness of the rhetoric, you are left with one plain truth. They are jealous because they cannot become banked. Because they are not banked, they cannot truly choose. They are not verified consumer adults. Do not be swayed from the path to your pledge. That's pretty good, Luke says. You sound like the counselor at my school. That's because my counselor sounded the same. Anjo clocks Luke's surprise and says, that's right, I had one too. But I was borderline, you know. I could leverage low expectations and get the fuck out. But you? You can't get out. I mean, none of us can get out. Not really, Anjo went on, drunk enough to be untroubled by contradiction. We just decide our price. He raised a bottle, and Luke raised the bottle of whatever he had, seeing the patches of whatever Anjo had pasted on the inside of his forearm. Next clinked. Luke's brain felt funny. Lukey boy, you can't say no to your demographic destiny any more than I can fly to the fucking moon, Anjo says. He's 17. Luke's father is looking at him with pure, slack-jawed disbelief that is at least three-quarters genuine. A credit union? Seriously? Why are you doing this to me? Riding the tide of his idealism, Luke forges ahead. I mean, wouldn't it be good to keep our influence close to home, like to work with people we know? Maybe have some like real influence over what our money's going to do out there. He means in the world, but the vagueness of his experience of the world becomes vagueness of, of, of expression when he tries to talk about it. He remembers driving past a park where kids were playing soccer years ago. Maybe they should have a real field? Maybe everyone should have more of what they need, and how's that going to happen if everyone keeps grubbing after the, the status relationships with trillion-dollar banks? Why can't he just say that? To anyone but his father, he could. We went through all this bi-local shit when your grandfather was a baby, his father says. The founder knew Luke. He knew that the idea behind a credit union was sound, but in this world, you've got to scale up. You pick the right bank, the sky's the limit. You pick a credit union... He trails off, like the potential consequences are too flabbergasting, even to enumerate. I just don't want to see you handicap yourself like that. You've got too much potential, Luke. I mean, you don't have to go Santander like I did. That was the right choice for me. But you've got all those years of my work to give you a leg up. You can shoot higher. I know, Pop, Luke says. I appreciate it. Eh, that's just what you do when you have kids, his dad says. Three days, Luke thinks, then I go on my hiatus. He's heard from older friends that the hiatus is either terrifying or liberating or clarifying or confusing. All Luke wants from it is a week to think about something without his dad bulldozing his way into Luke's thoughts. How come you won't say his name? Anjo asks. Who, the founder? Luke shrugs. We just don't. Jackson Chopra, Anjo says. Luke feels uncomfortable. Yeah, Anjo goes on. Just a guy with a big idea you got people to believe. There's more to it than that, though, as Luke has been told his whole life. The founder transformed the relationship between verified consumer adults, a status he defined, and whose universal implementation he oversaw, and their banks. Everyone understood that now, or at least everyone Luke had ever known. He was from one of the old families who followed the founder, bought in early as the chip tech matured. They were now the elders, keepers of the founder's legacy, since he had left no children of his own, although in a way everyone who pledged was the child of the founder's mind and vision. Everyone did it now, even those who had never heard of the founder and wouldn't care if they had. His great accomplishment had changed the everyday lives of billions through one simple act, the pledge. One person, one bank, forever and ever. 
Luke's grandparents had been BNP on one side and Deutsche Bank on the other. Luke's father exercised a tiny degree of rebellion, of which he was still proud when he chose Santander, but that put him in several of the same social circles where Luke's mother also moved, having also rebelled in a socially condoned sort of way. One thing had led to another, which had led to Luke. Now, he had a decision to make. Family said Santander, BNP, or Deutsche Bank. Farther back in his father's family, many of the men had chosen Bank of America. On his mother's side, there was a strain of Mitsubishi Financial. None of them had ever chosen a bank with less than a trillion in holdings. By the time he explains all this to Anjo, Anjo has a knife out and is pretending to cut his own throat. Then he bursts out into hysterical stone laughter that seems swallowed by the fog, but then comes echoing back from another direction. Fucking Jackson Chopra was just a banker who wanted to lock in access to generational wealth, you fucking dumbass. He chunks the knife into the bench near Luke's leg. Take that, so you can kill yourself the next time you have the impulse to tell that story, okay? The pledge ceremony is less than an hour away. Luke is trying, like hell, to keep himself on an even keel, but his dad keeps looming over everything. Like now, he's coming back as if he wants to rehash the credit union thing, which Luke only said to fuck with him in the first place because everything was already fucking with Luke, and if he didn't give some of it back, he was going to lose his mind. You want to rebel? His dad asks, rhetorically. Knock yourself out. Get a hologram tattoo. Gene splice yourself some gills. Whatever. Pierce your fucking brainstem if you want. I don't care. His father, sweating, casting nervous glances around at the assembled witnesses to his only son's singular rite of passage into verified consumer adulthood. This is already hard enough on your mother. She's popping Xanax like Skittles over there because she can't take the idea that she might not know where you are at some given moment coming up real soon. You want to add to that by fucking everything up for me? Why is this about you, Dad? Because I busted my ass for 30 years. Because my back will never be the same and my eyes are fucked up and I never had a hobby. All because I wanted to make sure you and your sisters had the best leg up in this fucked up world that you possibly could. I don't do that. You're right out there in the world, kid. The overheated, thirsty world. Not a rooftop guardian looking down at... The old man breaks off. His face is bleak and confused. Do what you want. Just honor that a little. He walks away. Luke feels twisted. And it's not just all the microdose patches piled up on the insides of his forearms. There's a trickle of unease in his gut, like his conscience is a physical thing. Who asked you, Dad? He thinks. I didn't ask him. Deep inside, he knows that no matter what happens today in 30 years, he'll be giving his own kid that same sick, frightened look. From the rooftop garden, he can see across the harbor to the little park where Anjo and his crew are probably sleeping under a tarp strung from the rotting hull of a boat to the tangle of lilacs and beach roses along the old narrow-gauge railroad tracks. But he didn't remember the lilacs blooming. Although, Anjo admitted later, as the tide had crested and begun to recede, some kids don't do it. I heard that. It's true. I mean, you're looking at them. But how, how am I supposed to? Yeah, seems impossible, right? Well, you've been told your whole life. How are you supposed to stand up against it all by yourself? Especially when if you go along, you get the chip, the bank, the status, everything that goes with it. How many generations of verified consumer adults you come from, Lucky boy? I don't know, four? That's great-great-grandparents. Seriously, you'd be talking about some of the first VCAs who ever got that status, like back in the 2040s or something. Shit, that's far. Anjo finds something in his pocket and tucks it in, inside his lower lip. Seriously, four? Like, you're fairly rich? No, Luke says, even though, of course, they're rich. That's the only reason he has the confidence to have a conversation like this with a person like Anjo. He wears his status like a sorcerous aura that attracts things like bank recruiters and resentment from the non-VCA population, and he knows it, mostly he ignores it. Once in a while it comes in handy, and then there are the times, like right now, when everything is laid bare and Luke wishes he had been born at another time, another place, with different decisions to make. I gotta go, man. Day seven.
Let's do it. I know you think you do. What, should I stay here, stand around a barrel fire, thumb my nose at all the other assholes who have a job and a place to sleep? I mean, no, 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 no. you got to figure it out. Go on, Lukey. Your daddy's waiting for you to do the right thing. Luke walks to the other end of the park. Anjo's gang watches him go. None of them mentions Anjo's knife stowed in Luke's back pocket. Luke feels like he's getting away with something. His hiatus sojourned to the flooded land of the forgotten ends with a relic to be venerated when he looks back on this time later in his life. Cape Tower, 40 stories tall, looks down on Portland across the harbor and the older neighborhoods surrounding it, Willard Beach, Ferry Village, Nightville. A hundred years ago, this, these were fishermen's neighborhoods, rough around the edges. What was the world like then, Luke wonders, before all this? But his train of thought is redirected as the celebrant steps up to the dais. He's a chase, but also an old friend of Luke's mom's. Beyond him, the sky is a perfect, empty blue. This is a big day, huh? He says, professionally jovial. Man, oh man, it sure is. Every kid has to decide on Pledge Day. We tell them about it for years. They watch other people do it. They're bombarded with the images of it and the idea that everything in their life depends on what they do at this moment. And you know what? They're right. Luke can feel his father's gaze boring into the back of his head. But you know what else? Everything in your life depends on what you do at every other given moment, too. Hear that, Dad? Luke thinks. The point is that every choice matters, and Pledge Day is both about itself and about the larger point that as a verified consumer adult, each of us has to understand the value of choice. Is that like a thing, Luke asks, pointing at the X-shaped scar on Anjo's left arm? I saw a guy with a scar like that once, and my dad said he'd cut out his chip like it was some political thing. Might be, Anjo said. Me, I never had a chip. I did it to make people think I had. Long time ago. Now it doesn't matter. Scars tell their own story, Luke boy. Doesn't matter what you want them to mean. In the fog, Anjo and the others have grown indistinct, their voices seeming to float without origin. Luke realizes how little he's slept these past seven nights and how much he's drunk, how many little patches he slapped on his skin. The celebrant cuts into Luke's upper arm, where his kidship has been since he was four years old. Blood trickles down and a hush settles over the witnesses. The blood isn't necessary. The entire ceremony could have been done with a cool laser to destroy the old chip and a subcutaneous injector to install the new one. But without blood, it wouldn't be a rite of passage. And the founder wisely understood that the relationship between a verified consumer adult and a bank should be ritualized. Therefore, blood. Luke watches it stick to his arm hairs, already beginning to clot and dry. The kid chip comes out with a little tug that's more painful than Luke wants to show. He looks out over the sky, anywhere but at his dad. Instead, he looks at his mother. She gazes steadily back, but her face is so tight that a stray raindrop would crack it apart. Suffering is always visible on the face, Luke's think, Luke thinks. I could run. She wouldn't know where I was. Nobody would. His grandparents had told him stories about running around when they were kids with nobody knowing where they were. To Luke, they seemed like stories about Paul Bunyan or Lancelot or Alibaba. How can anyone live like that? You can't say no to your demographic destiny. Anjo's voice in his head now. What did that even mean? The celebrant rested a hand on Luke's shoulder. You okay to go on, son? We don't have to do it all in one day, remember? Nine days, quoth the founder. This is eight. You can sleep on it. No, Luke says. I'm ready. His kidship was like anything, anyone else's. One of his first memories was watching it go in on the end of the little pokey thing whose name he never learned. It hurt, but he sat still because he understood it was important to his parents that he sit still and be a good boy, behave correctly, show that he was being raised right. 
Afterward, his dad mussed his hair and gave him a hug. We're going places, Lukey. You see, this family, together. His mother hung back a little, her gaze fixed on the tiny bruise on the back of his arm. Shells, his father says. You'll see. I know it was a lot of money, but it'll be worth it. I know, she says, with tears in her eyes. Luke can't understand why she's crying, but then again, he can't understand why he's crying either. Jeez, you too, his father says. On the rooftop garden of the Cape Tower, he's not a kid anymore, but also not yet an adult. On the table in front of Luke and the celebrant is a long, flat aluminum case. He opens it, revealing a line of six chips in sterile sealed packaging. He holds the case up so everyone can see, and a murmur ripples through the crowd as various pairs of augmented glasses pick out the roster of potential banks. Credit Agricole, Chase, Deutsche Bank, Santander, BNP, Mitsubishi. All solid, respectable choices, most with some family history. Relief radiates from his parents so intensely that Luke imagines convection currents around their heads. He wants them to be proud. He wants them to know he understands that choices matter, that being able to make choices matters. He picks a chip, but with his head down, so nobody can see that he has closed his eyes. I mean, what would you do if you didn't go through with it, Anjo asks. Don't matter to me, but you should think it through, you know? He watches Luke's face. Yeah, that's not even a real possibility to you, is it? You're like doing some kind of pretend thing, but in the end, people with houses on the Western Prom don't do shit like refuse to pledge. I could, Luke says. In what world? Anjo counters. This one, Luke thinks. But he can't think of a way to say it that will convince Anjo. He sits watching the little fire as the tide rises around the pilings and the moon creeps slowly down toward the invisible horizon. Soon enough, he's alone, and the fog has drifted away, receding out over the harbor and islands again. Luke feels like he's done the founder's vision proud. The celebrant presses the injector to the skin on the back of Luke's tricep. It makes a sharp snap as it fires the chip into one of the deep subdermal layers of Luke's skin. And with that snap comes a collective sigh from the audience, like they've all been holding their breath for minutes, hours, days. And only now that Luke is pledged can they all begin to breathe again. He can hear all the voices in his head at once. It won't make any difference. Can't fight demographic destiny. The world says, fuck you right back. Some bad decisions stay with you. Everyone is clapping. The celebrant looks at Luke, pride shining in his eyes. The same pride shines from his father's eyes and his mother's. Luke looks at his arm. X marks the spot. He thinks, I'm all grown up. He raises Anjo's knife and begins to cut. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. That was uh, that was intense. I love that. Um, where so that's you don't have a place that where it's going to be published yet. I just finished it last night. You just finished it last night. Do you have any idea where where it might appear? Uh, it's not really up to me. It's not up to you. All right, all right. Fair enough. Keep your eyes out. All right, so we're going to take a little bit of a little bit of a break, and we'll be, we'll be back with Grady Hendricks, and we'll also have a book giveaway. So stick around, and again, remember, please buy a drink. So we'll be right back with Grady Hendricks in a couple minutes. Our next reader. First of all, I just want to say thank you for coming out tonight. We always appreciate everyone coming in person. Um, like my, my partner in crime, Rajan Khanna, I am also discombobulated tonight. I, we've been doing it virtually for like two years, then we're in person, then we went virtual for a while, now we're back in person. In person fucking rocks, right? I, I love seeing you all. Thank you for coming. 
as Rajan said, listen, all we ask is you buy a drink hard or soft. Please support the bar. Mary's working hard to keep you hydrated. Please tip your bartender. Thank you, Mary. Um, fantastic fiction at KGB. By the way, my name is Matthew Kressel. So I normally co host with Ellen Datlow, but she's on a plane right now to Italy. Um, no, I love Ellen. She's awesome. Um, everyone loves Ellen. So before we start, I have um, a little uh, book giveaway. So um, my friend Teresa Lucci, wave Teresa, uh, works at Hachette, and she is giving away this book, Old Country, uh, by Matt Query and Harrison Query uh, brothers. So. We're going to give it away with a little trivia. So the book is based on a true story about a haunted house, uh, a haunted house story available, f available in August from Grand Central Publishing. So this was a Reddit thread that went viral. Uh, it's about a haunted house. So the question is this. Uh, and if you answer this question, the first person to answer this question, I'll give this book away. Uh, here you go. Name the movie title. This other haunted house movie based on the real life account of the haunting of the Lutz family of Long Island, New York. Amityville Horror. We have a winner. Okay. Thank you. Oh, jeez. As I said, discombobulated. So here's the thing. I, I have an Amityville Horror story. I grew up uh, in Massapequa. If you've never heard of the town, uh, if you ever watch comedians in cars drinking coffee with Jerry Seinfeld and Alec Baldwin, they're also both from Massapequa. It's a weird town in, in Nassau County, Long Island. Anyway, it's right next to Amityville. Um, so I'm like 17, I'm in high school. I'm hanging out with my girlfriend on the couch. Not anymore, I'm quite older than 17. But I'm hanging out on the couch, I'm like, oh, I'm cool, I'm watching, and we're like, we're watching Amityville Horror, and like, I'm like, I'm cool, I'm watching horror movies with my girlfriend. Of course, like, my dad comes home, he's like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, watching Amityville Horror. He's like, oh, I just got a piece of siding from the Amityville Horror House. And he like, holds it up, I'm like, I'm like, ha, 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 real funny, dad. He's like, no, I, I did, I, I bought it at a garage sale, like, right in Amityville, and I'm like, fuck, like, I, it was creepy, I don't know, that's my story, it's not that exciting. <laughs> That's why I don't write horror, right? All right. Before we get before we get on to uh, to Grady, because he's a much better uh, horror writer than I am, apparently. Um, we just want to talk about our, our upcoming readers. Next month, June fifteenth, Karen Hewler and uh, Karen. Where's Karen? Wave Karen and Sam J. Miller. Please join us for that. Uh, July twentieth, Daniel Brown and Greg Frost. August 17th, Veronica Shanus and Richard Butner. September 21st, Nassim Jamnia. And our favorite guest, TBA. Uh, October 19th, Clay McLeod Chapman and Meg Ellison. And uh, we've got a couple other tentative uh, readers coming up, so we're, we'll announce them as, they, uh, as we get them confirmed. Uh, if you are not on our mailing list, I know people are like, oh, email? That's so, like, you know... That's so 2010. But um, yeah, we have a mailing list. If you go to kgbfantasticfiction.org, or you could follow me, Matt Kressel, on Twitter, or Ellen Datlow on Twitter, we retweet it. All that good stuff. Is there a TikTok? 
<laughs> no, but do you want to start one for us? Yes, it's a threat. Yeah, so so that's our uh, we have a mailing list if you want. Um, all right, so Grady, where's Grady? There he is. You move. You ship seats. I'm like, that's not great. That's Alex. Um, Grady is a New York Times best. Grady Hendrix is a best is a New York Times best-selling novelist and screenwriter who makes up lies and is mean to babies. I've seen this. It's true. He has written terrible books like My Best Friend's Exorcism, The Final Girl Support Group, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, and Paperbacks from Hell. Currently, he has an unhealthy fixation on gothic romances. Here's Grady Hendrix. All right. Hey, y'all. Uh, I don't do short stories very well. They're terrible. You guys are going to discover that right, right here tonight together. Um, so back in the early 90s, I worked in a bookstore, and it was around the time that Rita Mae Brown, the famous feminist author, began writing uh, mystery novels about her cat, Sneaky Pie Brown, solving mysteries. And uh, they were titles like Claws and Effect, uh, The Perfect Murder. Um, and that spawned a whole craze for cats that solve mysteries. Uh, Miranda James's Cat in the Stacks Mysteries, uh, Meow If It's Murder, a lot of these. Um, so I wanted to write my very own cat that solves murder story. Um, <laughs> you might want to <laughs> wait and see. <clears throat> my cat loves three things. Bananas, it's weird, loves bananas, sitting on plastic grocery bags, and solving homicides. He's uh, one of those hairless sphinx cats. Uh, so instead of fur, he's kind of covered in a waxy film. And when the sun goes down, he sort of oozes up next to me, nuzzling into my nooks and crannies to absorb my body heat. Uh, as far as pets go, he would not have been my first choice. Uh, but he belonged to my ex, and a year and a half after she moved in, she moved out, taking my mountain bike, my Xbox, and uh, leaving behind her engagement ring and stinker bell. Uh, so. <laughs> I tried to find someone to take him. I, I did, but honestly, it's a hard fact of life. Nobody wants a hairless cat. Uh, and Stinkerbell and I have formed this sort of uneasy alliance. He needs my body heat to survive. I need another living creature in the house so I don't blow my brains out from loneliness. Uh, and when that starts feeling a little claustrophobic, I remind myself that my parents' marriage was built on less. <laughs> then the homicide thing started. Uh, so I'm actually just finishing my sixth year as a Portland police officer. My dream is to transfer into the Vulnerable Adult and Elder Crimes Unit, uh, which not a lot of police want to do, really. But when I was a kid, uh, my parents put my grandfather in a Rackham and Stackham nursing home, and they'd cut staff so they didn't have much time for their residents, and granddad developed bed sores, and those got affected, and it ended ugly. And the nursing home accepted no liability, and my mom blamed herself, and that guilt rolls right downhill. Uh, and it's harder, actually, than you'd think to become a recognized, legally recognized advocate for the elderly. Uh, there are only two law enforcement officers in Portland's Elder Crimes Unit. And so the competition's actually more intense than you would think uh, because you get punched less when you're dealing with senior citizens. Um, so I signed up to work for behavioral health uh, to polish my resume so I'd have a better chance one of those slots came open. And I spent a lot of time on bike patrol, helping runaways out of crisis, or standing on the other side of locked bathroom doors, convincing unwell people to stop drinking bleach or explaining to homeless people with shit in their pants that they really needed to get back on their meds. 
And, you know, everyone is entitled to a bad day. I'm the guy who helps you get through it. Stinkerbell wanted bigger things. Started one night when I was watching a Rams game. Stinkerbell hopped up on my lap looking for body heat, I assume. But he did, he did that cat thing where he keeps getting in your face. And I'm like, come on, man, you're blocking the screen. Douglas, man who shot Jimmy Lee Lucas, his brother, Freddie Lucas. What? What the fuck? What the fuck? Jimmy Lee Lucas shot. Shooter brother. You arrest. I locked myself in the bathroom. Stinkerbell started sticking his paw underneath the door. Douglas, you know Stinkerbell. We share bed. Stinkerbell, smart cat. Freddy Shooter. You're a cat. You don't speak. You don't solve homicides. Shut the fuck up. Stinkerbell, solve homicide. Give Stinkerbell banana. I pressed my fist against my temples and bit down on a towel to keep from screaming, Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Make a rest. Give Stinkerbell banana. Stinkerbell, good cat. I slept in the tub that night. <laughs> For the next two weeks, I pretended Stinkerbell hadn't spoken, and Stinkerbell pretended he was a normal rather than a talking and crime-solving cat. And then I heard that Homicide brought in Freddie Lucas for questioning. And in 15 minutes, he broke. He told him everything. He had an argument with his brother. He'd gotten out of hand. He didn't mean to pull the trigger. His brother was right. He, he was wrong. Picard was the best captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> and that afternoon, I came home from work, and I found Stinkerbell sitting in the recycling in a nest he'd made of plastic shopping bags. We need to talk. Stinkerbell get banana? They arrested the shooter. Stinkerbell began to purr. Look, I don't know how you did this, but let's just go back to being man and cat, okay? No crime solving, no more. Man, cat. Let's leave it there. Not, Stinkerbell said. Stinkerbell must to solve homicides. Stinkerbell must to get banana. Listen, there were 19 homicides in Portland last year. The police solved all of them without cats. Not. Solve homicide, get banana, must for Stinkerbell. I couldn't control what Stinkerbell did, to be honest. He's a cat. No one can control what cats do. But I could control how I reacted. So I pretended the hours he spent walking around on my computer keyboard was just walking around like a cat, not surfing the internet. I pretended he was sleeping on the newspaper, not reading it. Uh, I pretended he was sitting next to me on the couch at night, not watching the local news. And then Marcy Chow disappeared, and I had to stop pretending. She was a high school senior who got an early admission to Harvard, and she left a friend's house one Tuesday evening and never arrived home. Her dad was a sports section editor for the Portland Tribune, so this was big news in the city. Town was blanketed with Have You Seen Marcy posters, and no one had a clue. Except Stinkerbell. I woke up with his butthole in my face. <laughs> Waking you, Stinkerbell said, waving a starfish from side to side. Stinkerbell, solve Marcy Chow homicide. Stinkerbell, get banana now. I pulled a pillow over my head. He wormed his face underneath. Little girl, life at stake. Douglas must listen. When he put it like that, I didn't have a choice. I am, after all, a professional peace officer with a duty to uphold the law. So while I had coffee, Stinkerbell outlined his casework. Stinkerbell cross-referenced Marcy Chow root home with sex offender registry. Dale Evans Bradshaw live here. He put his paw on a printout from Google Maps. Listen, Stinkerbell, I'm sure they've checked this guy's house. But they checked Mother's house? She lived East Portland. Here. Much mud big basement. He showed me her house on Google Earth, and it was a sagging heap on a quarter acre of dirt with not very many close neighbors. Two weeks earlier, behavioral health had actually been in that neighborhood with a hoarder situation. Uh, 
there had been 42 mummified dogs in one household, so I knew that things would get rough in uh, that part of town. Stinkerbell solve homicide. Get friskies. Have banana. <laughs> when it comes to helping people, I don't have any pride. So I called Crime Stoppers with an anonymous tip, and the next evening there's a press conference. Officers have responded to the tip, gone to the location, found the owner's behavior suspicious, searched the property. They found Marcy Chow's body packed in rock salt in the trunk of an abandoned Ford Focus. How did you know? I asked Stinkerbell. Stinkerbell squinted at me and purred, chewing his banana in silence. <laughs> Cats. <laughs> Over the next 11 months, I called Crime Stoppers three times. I felt like I had a responsibility as a police officer to report any information that might assist in the solving of a homicide, even if the source of that information was my ex-girlfriend's hairless cat. Stinkerbell was right on the money, twice. Soon he was spending every day online in crime chat forums, looking at cold cases. He watched the news every night. When I tried to change the channel, he hissed. When Douglas solved crime of who shits in mailbox, Stinkerbell solved homicide. That is a really unfair characterization of my work. Stinkerbell ignored me. Over the next year, I talked down 13 people in full-blown mental health crises. I got a citation for peacefully diffusing a situation with a heavily armed dad suffering a psychotic break. And I made the final round of the Elder Crimes Unit interviews. Stinkerbell solved four more homicides. He actually solved eight, but four were solved by Portland City detectives almost simultaneously, which sent Stinkerbell into a rage, clawing the sofa, shredding the rug, shitting in my shoes. Why can't Douglas be real, please? When he got like that, I learned it was better to let him alone. Got worse. I'd come home from a long day to find Stinkerbell yabbering at me incessantly about clues and tips and cat informants and suspects and leads. I'd go to bed with him rubbing against my legs and insisting I call Crime Stoppers. And then I'd wake up at 5 a.m. with him whining in my ear, telling me to email homicide. When I refused, he'd piss in my laundry. There, there aren't a lot of crime, uh, homicides in Portland, but the stats jumped. 25% that year from 19 to 24. And Stinkerbell solved six of them. Fatty Thompson's vehicular homicide, the mauling of Lorraine Gray, Steve Zuckerman slashing, Hernandez Del Rio's execution, the Lipswitch twins' execution, and the Sheila Flores table saw murder. Everyone thought that one was an accident, actually, until Stinkerbell noticed that the angle of the strike on the saw was all wrong. Give Stinkerbell friskies. Give Stinkerbell banana. Transfer to homicide. I gave Stinkerbell friskies, I gave Stinkerbell bananas, but I did not transfer to homicide. Then Stinkerbell started emailing tips to a homicide detective using my work account. <laughs> you can't do that, Stinkerbell. Why? Because I don't want to work homicide. Why? I'm not going to be bullied by a cat. End of discussion. But it's never the end of discussion with a cat. And people at work started to notice. The following year, homicide rate ticked up to 30, and Stinkerbell solved 11 of them. Homicide detectives began calling and asking me if I had any insight into their latest cases. My captain was pushing me to become a criminalist, but I wanted to work elder crimes. It's the waste of a good investigative mind, he told me, turning down my request to transfer for the third time. You're ruining my life, I shouted at Stinkerbell when I got home that night. He licked his paws and groomed his whiskers. Stinkerbell solved homicide. Get friskies. Get banana. I threw a shoe at him. He didn't flinch. Stinkerbell, great detective. Douglas, bad. Bad police. Bad man. <laughs> the one bright spot in my life was Mary Epstein, a girl I'd met at a spotting and stopping elder abuse workshop, and Stinkerbell became furious at how much time I was spending at her house all of a sudden. 
I'd come home most mornings, and he'd be pacing circles in the kitchen right in front of the door, his litter box strewn across the floor, my plants chewed to shreds, piles of vomit drying on my comforter. Why, Douglas, bad, please? Stinkerbell, good cat. Stinkerbell, solve clues. Stinkerbell, need friskies. Stinkerbell, need bananas. Douglas, bad. Douglas, stink man. Mary kept asking when she could sleep over at my place. I, I should have transferred to homicide. If I'd been on homicide, I would have seen the crime scene photos earlier. I would have put the clues together faster. I would have seen the chewed bananas in the pantry of the Santiago death house. The nest of plastic bags in the recycling bin of the doubled homicide daycare. The gnawed corner of a box of friskies at the Larson gas murders. I was just a regular police trying to get into elder crimes and have a relationship. And the police pieces just didn't click into place for me until I was watching the 11 o'clock news at Mary's and we saw the story of the Hondo birthday party arson. A gruesome scene when officers responded to a neighbor's report of smoke and found Father Ty Hondo tied to his bed, soaked in kerosene, and set ablaze. Police arrived too late to save Mr. Hondo from a fate not only worse than, but also including death. <laughs> However, there was one bright spot when firefighters were able to save this little fellow who was trapped in the apartment. Cut to a picture of Stinker Bell. Everyone loves cats, and this guy needs a home. Portland, can you open your hearts? I couldn't breathe. I jerked both upright. My neck was so tight I was just making a whining noise over and over again. What's wrong, Mary asked. Nothing. Nothing. I realized what I had done. I had to go downtown. Why? But by then, I was already in my car. They lit me into the animal control lockup and took me to where Stinkerbell paced his cage. What did you do, Stinkerbell? What did you fucking do? Release Stinkerbell. Stinkerbell must dissolve homicide. Get friskies. Get banana. I ought to let you rot in this cell. Cats is nice and good. Stinkerbell is cats. Stinkerbell is nice and good. I know what you've been doing. You're sick. Give banana to nice and innocent Stinkerbell. Take nice and innocent Stinkerbell home. You've been killing these people, haven't you? Then pretending to solve their homicides. Stinkerbell stopped pacing and sat on the floor of his cage. He raised his back leg over his head and licked his butthole for a minute. <laughs> then he turned his yellow eyes on me. Stinkerbell crime-solving cat. Stinkerbell must dissolve homicide. Portland homicide too few for Stinkerbell. Stinkerbell must make homicide. Is so what? His only peoples, no cats. You sick piece of shit. Stinkerbell is cat. Stinkerbell not responsible in court of law. Take Stinkerbell home. Take Stinkerbell home and give good and nice innocent Stinkerbell banana. You're staying in here. But Douglas, they gas Stinkerbell. No more banana. No more friskies. That's right. How many murders are on your paws? No, on second thought, you know what? Don't even tell me. I couldn't live with myself if I knew the number. I turned to leave, but Stinkerbell wasn't finished me with me yet. When Stinkerbell get adopted, Stinkerbell come looking for Douglas. Stinkerbell unhappy. No one's going to adopt you. You know why? Because no one wants a hairless cat. I walked away. Douglas! His piteous mewling echoed down the hall. I still hear it in my dreams. Don't leave Stinkerbell. Stinkerbell not legally responsible. Stinkerbell no meet legal requirements for competency. Give Stinkerbell banana! I had lived with this monster. I knew exactly what it was capable of. Portland was only safe as long as Stinkerbell was off the streets. I walked right out of animal control and got in my car and drove away. I was shaking so hard when I got back, Mary thought I should go to the hospital. Instead, I got in the shower, turned the water as hot as it could go, and then turned it up hotter. I scrubbed for hours, and it still wasn't enough. 
I put a mark on my calendar for 30 days. And then I went back to work. At 28 days, they found a volunteer from the city shelter slumped behind the wheel of her car, parked in a remote garage on the east side of town, murdered execution style. I didn't put the pieces together quite then. Instead, I marked 30 days on the calendar. Then 31. By 35, I started to relax a little bit. By 50, I felt like celebrating. I took Mary to a Tibetan place we'd been meaning to try. It was warm night. The air smelled like coffee and spring. What are you smiling about? She kept asking me. Just being here with you. And it was true. I decided that was the night she'd come back to my place. It was time. I'm a pretty neat guy, so I didn't have to run around, hide my underwear, you know. I let Mary walk in first. I'm proud of my house, you know. I'm proud for her to see it. Proud that I'd finally put this long nightmare behind me. I knew something was wrong when Mary froze in the kitchen. I stepped around her puzzled and saw what waited for us in the middle of the kitchen floor. Stinkerbell crouched there, taut and stiff, his pale, hairless chest pressed to linoleum, tail sticking straight up, yellow eyes burning. The animal shelter had changed him, made him hard. Fresh, <laughs> fresh muscle rippled beneath his pink skin. He was covered in homemade tattoos. Meow was tattooed across the knuckles of one paw. Meow was tuckled across the knuckles of the other. Banana with two B's and three N's in a gothic script was tattooed in an arc on his stomach. It's a teardrop on one cheek. What happened to you, Stinkerbell? Each cat must go through hell to raise paradise. Stinkerbell, go to hell. Now Stinkerbell's back. What the fuck, Mary said? This cat is talking! We both ignored her. This is between me and Stinkerbell now. Whatever it is, listen, we can work it out. No one has to get hurt. You want friskies? I've got, I just bought bananas today. Stinkerbell hissed. Too late, bananas. Too late, friskies. Stinkerbell want one thing. I don't want any trouble, I said. If cats could smile, that's what Stinkerbell did. I felt my blood turn to ice. Stinkerbell bored. Stinkerbell must solve homicide. I saw his yellow eyes shift to Mary, his tail lashing. Jesus Christ! Stinker... Jesus! Dear God, help us! Stinkerbell like God, and God like Stinkerbell. Stinkerbell him large as God. God is small as Stinkerbell. Stinkerbell smarter than Douglas. Stinkerbell solved more crime than Douglas. Stinkerbell better cat than Douglas. Stinkerbell killed Douglas! It happened fast. One minute he's yowling his fucked up jailhouse philosophy at the top of his tiny lungs. The next, he's leaping at my throat. Fate, a twist face, a twisted mask of hate. His claws gleamed. His eyes burned. I had no choice. I punted him. I, listen, I don't condone violence against animals in any way, but even I could appreciate the perfect arc Stinkerbell made as my foot connected and he flew backwards through the air, tumbling head over tail, flying through the doorway, across the living room, through my open bedroom door, over my bed, and then out the open window, taking the screen with him. I raced to the front window. Of course, Stinkerbell had landed on his feet. Mary stood next to me and Stinkerbell looked up at us from the middle of the street, three stories below. He fixed his burning eyes on us, burning with hatred, burning with revenge. He spat, stinker bell. Then a truck ran him over. <laughs> Mary gasped. The truck turned the corner and Stinkerbell picked himself up off the asphalt and limped for the sidewalk. A Honda Accord clipped him next. Then a Prius. He shook his head to clear it after that one. Stinkerbell kill Douglas! He meowed. Next it was a city bus. Then that was good for two of his lives. I figured at least. Then a Ford Bronco with a pink lift light. Then another Prius. A guy on a mountain bike. 
Stinkerbell kept coming. How many lives did this cat have? Get in the bathroom, I told Mary. Lock the door. Do not come out until you hear me knock. It was going to come down to me and Stinkerbell the way I always knew it would. <laughs> then a street cleaner came around the corner, and that was pretty much it for Stinkerbell. Uh, after it passed by, there was nothing but a little greasy cat's eye smear on the pavement. I stood for a minute, and then I went in the bathroom and wrapped my arms around Mary. It's over, I said. It's finally over. That poor cat! You kicked him out the window! You fucking monster! She hit me. I tried to explain about Stinkerbell, but you know, she wasn't listening. She left out of my apartment, out of my life, and I was alone again. I work elder crimes these days, and I do good work, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm mostly happy. And every now and then I read about these cats who make these incredible journeys, traveling thousands of miles to get back to their owners, and my blood runs cold. I sleep with the lights on those nights. Recently, Mary died in a car accident. I hadn't seen her in like five years, but I went to her funeral anyways, and her mom told me her brakes had failed. Her dad said he'd been telling her to get them fixed for months. They both said it was an accident. Afterwards, I walked back to where I parked my car. There was yellow pollen all over the windshield. Yellow, like Stinkerbell's eyes. And through the middle of the pollen was a tiny row of paw prints. I told myself they're raccoon prints, or maybe the hands of a very small, deformed child living in the bushes, but not cat prints. They can't be. It, it took me a while to get my breathing under control. I, I told myself it was allergies. That's all it was, just allergies. That's, that's why I had that tightness in my chest. That's why I couldn't breathe. That's why I was sweating. Nights are when it gets worst. That's when things get quiet and all my windows feel too big and my apartment feels too full of places to hide. I lie on my bed at 3 a.m. staring at the ceiling, trying to do the math. The lift had been life number six. The Prius was number seven. Did the mountain bike count as number eight? No. Had it been lift number five live? Second, the Prius is number six. Mountain bike is seven. Street cleaner is number eight. Number nine. Wait, what about the bus? Where does the bus fit in? Before I know it, the sun's coming up. In the gray pre-dawn light, my senses twitch at every sound. Some of those sounds, I think I'm imagining them, but I know some of them I'm not. Those early morning hours... They're when I feel like I'm the only man alive in the world. It's when I feel vulnerable and exposed. It's when I feel the loneliest. Thinking of getting a dog. Thank you, guys. Did you just write that for tonight? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I, I fixed it up. It was in sad condition. That was that was pretty amazing. So, Grady, Alex, thank you, thank you both. So, uh, we got a, just a couple minutes here. We'd like to do something that we just started doing recently. What time is it? Yeah, we got a couple minutes. We're gonna do a little Q and A with the authors. So, if you have any questions for Grady or Alex, anybody have any questions for the authors? Questions? Yes, right there. So so we have a uh, an audio podcast, so yeah. we just want to repeat the question okay. for the mic. So right. so what was the question? So the question is uh, when uh, we started getting uh, the, the like sort of brochures for the New York Asian Film Fest 
and there were these blurbs for the films, and within two sentences, I was rabid to see a film I'd never <laughs> heard of. Did yeah. you write all those? Yeah. So the question yeah. is, did Grady write all these sentences for the Asian Film, film Festival? Fest. Yeah. Is that, did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. You I did? Yeah. Did, so, yeah. Is it more than a yes? Do you need more, yeah, more yeah, explanation? Yeah. So come up here and say it into the mic no, if okay, it's sure. more than just a no, yes yeah, or no. Well, it's, it's quick, but yeah, yeah. no, I was a... Uh, um, yeah, let's take it up. The yeah. It's easy. It's better. Oh, sorry. There you go. Yeah, I, I was a total control freak, and yeah. so it was the street flyers with the blurbs, the program book, the website, the press release, and I made them all separate blurbs because I thought that was important. And so it was like 30 movies a year for 16 years, and some years we had, it was so, it was the stupidest thing I ever did in my life. But yeah, no, I, I was just, I, I don't know what my issue I would, was. I would just read a title of a film, never heard of the film, and then I'd read one sentence and two sentences, and suddenly I was like completely like, I have to go see this movie. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> so, the, the, it was, the, uh, the answer was, or the, the comment was that the, they would read one or two sentences and would have to see the film. Uh, any, any questions for, for Alex or Grady? Any, any other questions? Anybody have anything they want to ask? Like, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? What they're going to, who they're going to vote for? No, we're not going to go to politics. When's the next um, eclipse? No, no, yeah, when's the next eclipse? Come on, somebody's gotten anything. All right, Rajan, what do you got? No, there's no such thing as a terrible question. As a teacher, that's not true. <laughs> okay, so I'll start with Grady. So I'm a cat guy. So I'm a little offended by this last day. However, it is also very accurate. <laughs> so, and I know you're a dog guy. Yeah. I know. Um, how do you channel this thing? Is I guess what I'm asking. Oh yeah. Okay. So I actually wanted to call this story "Cat Fear" because I really like Kate Fear, um, and uh, uh, but that was too terrible. But I house sat for these people once in upstate who was like they were like doctors who commuted two and a half hours to the city every day and they were going on vacation. So I house sat and they had a hundred and seventy five pound dog that just could do whatever the fuck it wanted. Like, you know, I, I, I weighed like 160, you know, it wanted my breakfast to have my breakfast. And then it had, they had this little hairless sphinx cat. And at first I was like, dogs, fuck you cat, grow some hair. And, but the cat and I developed this alliance because the dog was an asshole and ate my breakfast like every day. And the cat hated the dog and I hated the dog and the cat needed my body warmth to survive. And it would like come and stick to me at night. And like, I was like, you know, and after a while I really came to have a lot of affection for that cat, but cats are, you know, sociopaths also. And, you know, I keep thinking when I see a cat. I see a cat and I see Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. This is a three-part question, actually. So I have four cats, and please do not run away from me right now, but, but I have four cats. And they have conditioned me to say they do not mean you any harm, and they are here to be peaceful. No, um, I want to ask Alex, do you have any cat-related things to say? Really <laughs> Do you have any strong feelings about cats? Just because I feel like that's... I'm going to slink into nowhere after this, but um, if, you know, I raised this question. Uh, I have more of a 
c- come up onto the mic if you can. See, dog people just like, I don't know. Sorry. So we're going to have the cat and dog conversation, okay? I mean... <laughs> um, this is like one of those panels at a science fiction convention where someone wants to argue about the difference between science fiction and fantasy. And, uh, and, but uh, I'm a dog person, confirmed dog person. I had a cat once. Here's how I had a cat. I was doing summer stock in New Hampshire, and I had a room um, above uh, the barn in this old farmhouse. Along That's where the whole company lived. And one day I came home from rehearsal, and there was a cat sleeping on my pillow. And I picked up the cat and threw it out the window. And then I went and took a shower, and I came back in the room, and the cat was on my pillow. And I threw the cat out the window. And this went on for about 48 hours, and then I gave up. And I was like, okay, cat, you can stay. But you can't stay on the pillow. And I don't know if the cat was just humoring me or whatever, but uh, the cat stayed off the pillow after that. I named him Dave. And, uh, and I kept Dave uh, for the whole summer, and then I gave him to one of the interns, and I assume he lived a long and happy life. But uh, that's the only cat I've ever had. Um, what was the question? <laughs> uh, but I, I currently have two dogs, and uh, have always been a dog person, and uh, honestly prefer them to cats, but, uh, but I don't hold it against people who like cats. And I don't hold it against you. I'm glad. Okay. Any questions from anyone remotely related to writing? What's the best money the readers have ever spent as a writer? Uh, Grady, take, let's go first, and then Alex. I don't know if this is the best, but um, so I, I, it was just, I don't know, I, I think there are probably a lot of writers here. It's, you know, we all just got our royalty checks, right, either in March or April. Um, and so, you know, you feel a little flush. And um, I saw that someone was like, in the late 80s, they wrote a children's book called Please, Mommy, Don't Make Me Go Back about <laughs> satanic child abuse at daycare centers, and it's told from the kid's point of view. And it's like, please, Mommy, don't make me go back. They put on hoods and make me marry my little boyfriends, and then they make us have married people time. And it's just great. And like, <laughs> at one point, like, the little girl, they're like, she's lying there as if she's dead. What's going on at that daycare center? And it was like, it was on sale for like $88. And I was like, oh, that's way too much for this stupid book that's like 14 pages long. It's like, fuck, I just got my royalty check. And I bought it, and I haven't regretted it at all. This explains much. Alex. So I, I, I guess a different angle on the same thing. I, it's a, weird books. I mean, the best money that you can spend as a, as, a, as a writer, I think, is books that will, like, bend your head in some particular way. And, um, and I love, love, love weird self-published local histories. Like, every place I go, I always stop at, like, the Zippy Mart on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere in the woods, and there is always some book about, you know, some county history or some famous, locally famous house or, you know, some memoir of a fisherman or something like that. And I buy those books every single time. And I tell you what, um, most of them are terrible, but they, uh, but they, but they, they, they get things cooking in, yeah. in the engine room, you know, in a way that, uh, that reading the latest book by, you know, whoever um, that you saw in the New York Times doesn't. Um, so I would say, like, as a writer, 
you know, just uh, just uh, soak everything up and 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 soak up the soak up the weird and the out of the way and the forgotten. And that's that's what I try to do anyway. It's um. a good answer. Any other questions? I saw a couple. Yeah. Yeah, what inspired your story, Alex? Come up to the mic, sorry, so we can get on the podcast. Thank you. So, uh, this story is kind of a complicated lineage, I guess, which is that um, I remember reading about people who were microchipping their children and thinking, what sort of freakish psycho helicopter nut would you have to be to microchip your child? And then I had kids, and I still felt the same way, because uh, one of the best things about my childhood was the times when nobody knew where I was. And, you know, we went out, and we did all, you know, if, if you're a, a, of a certain generation, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, your mom kicked you out the door in the morning and said, come back when it gets dark. Right, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I came home after school, and nobody was there. It was just me and Johnny Sacco. And it was, um, and, and so I started thinking about, you know, like extending that idea, like what if, you know, if everybody's going to chip their kids, then what would the rite of passage look like when you reached adulthood and you could let go of your kid chip? Does that mean you become unchipped? No, because you've been chipped, and so you must remain chipped. And so then I thought, well, you know, and, and then I ran a bunch of different directions, and then I settled on the bank thing because I, th because I had, in parallel, had this idea that never went anywhere by itself about... Um, about a, a cultural moment in which people um, chose a bank the way that they chose a religion. And so then those two ideas kind of cross-pollinated and, uh, and, and this rough beast was born, so. it's a great answer. Let's, let's get one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Anyone, I saw maybe a question over here. Anybody, anybody, question, question? All right, no questions. Where can we find you? All right, one more question from Rajan. Is this about cats and dogs again, Raj? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, horror or favorite recommendations? Well, because it's Jewish American Heritage Month, <laughs> I'm going to recommend *The Tribe* by Barry Wood. That is the great Jewish horror novel. It's from 1981. It's just been republished by Valancourt, uh, and it's phenomenal and set in New York City and if you like old grimy New York City like in the 80s this is like the real uncut stuff it's phenomenal great Alex you got anything uh, for horror wow um, I guess the, the last nothing new but anybody read uh, That sounds like a Jeffrey Ford story, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ford was actually the one. He mentioned it on Facebook. Yes. And, and, and I, I'm a member of the Informal Jeff Ford Book Club, and which, is, which, which is, speaking of spending money, every time Jeff Ford mentions something online, I go buy it. And, uh, and so this is why I have like the classic of Mountains and Seas and all, and all these uh, weird folklore books. Um, but he mentioned Black Spider, and so I ran up and, and, and bought it. And uh, yeah, Jeff Ford's recommendations are money. Wait, what is it? Yeah, so, uh, all right, that was uh, 
That was a pretty great reading. I love both the readings tonight. Both authors were, were fantastic. So before we wrap up tonight, where can we find your work? Where can, where can people here buy your stuff and, and support, support your work? Uh, Grady, where can we get your work? GradyHendricks.com. GradyHendricks.com. And Alex Irvine, where can we get your work? Well, it's AlexIrvine.com. AlexIrvine.com. Yeah, there's a hyphen in the middle. Don't forget the hyphen. Hyphen's important. Yeah. So uh, we're Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Thank you so much. Again, please buy drinks if you can. We love you. We will see you next month. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB reading series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.